today, after a long time in Acts chapter 12, we move on to Acts chapter 13, except we're going to start back in those last two verses that I brushed over briefly last week. Um, Chapter 13 marks a number of changes in the narrative of the book of Acts. Uh, In the first 12 chapters, Luke has primarily been talking about the beginnings of the Christian church. This necessarily was all about the church in Jerusalem, because it was the only church at the beginning. Now, with just a couple of exceptions, the focus uh, changes to the establishment of the church in the Greco-Roman areas of the Roman Empire. While the church in Jerusalem was almost entirely made up of Jews who became Christians, the first original Messianic Jews, as we will say, we now go into those previous, well, those pagan areas with the message of the gospel. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, 16 through 20, it says, Now, The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, By all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Chapter 13 begins the work of spreading Christianity to the ends of the earth in earnest. With With this emphasis of the shift in outreach from Jews to Gentiles, Peter will now be less prominent in Acts, and Saul of Tarsus will take center stage. Here also, chapter 13 marks the point where Saul of Tarsus becomes known as the Apostle Paul. The name Saul, of course, was the Apostle Paul's Hebrew name. In his dealings with Jews and Hebrew Christians, it was natural that his Hebrew name was what he used. However, as his ministry shifts to the Gentiles, uh, to the Greeks and Romans, and whoever else was about in the uh, areas that he was going to be traveling, which were usually highly populated trade route cities, the Greek name he had grown up with, Paul, is the name that will be used by him and of him. Last week, as I said, I ended our study with a very superficial exposition on the last two verses of chapter 12. Today I'm going to start with an equally superficial explanation of those two verses. So... There's not that much there, okay? So, to recap, an angel of the Lord leads Peter to a jailbreak. Peter goes to where the church in Jerusalem is praying for him. They don't believe it's actually Peter at the door, but they eventually go to check and then let him in. Peter tells them of his supernatural rescue, and then he gets out of Dodge for a secure, undisclosed location. The... um, Roman guards search the prison frantically for Peter, only to face execution for losing their prisoner. Herod Agrippa returns to Caesarea. 
gives an oration where he is hailed as a god and upon accepting a claim as a god is promptly eaten alive from the inside out by upwards of 50 million tapeworms. That's my favorite part, by the way, just to let you know. So, you know, (laughs) I always love a happy ending. Anyway, Acts 12, 24 through 25 reads, But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Verse 24 proves what it says in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, and I tell you, you are, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This early persecution by Herod Agrippa with the execution of the Apostle James, not even unfairly, but against the law, uh, and the planned trial and execution of the Apostle Peter, thwarted by the intervention as it was by an angel of God, uh, only caused the word of God to be increased and the church to grow. Verse 25 says that Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. There is a timeline problem with Barnabas and Saul completing their mission uh, of bringing uh, monetary gifts to the church in Jerusalem. We're not really going to go into that except for me to explain once again, historians of Luke's era were not concerned with the timeline of things. They grouped their history by events. This event ties in with the events that Luke was now going into. So it is said here. Because basically, Paul and Barnabas were probably not in Jerusalem for the length of time it took to bring the offerings Other things happened. Let's just leave it at that. And the historian loops things together that really don't belong there. Saul and Barnabas returned, however. They did return, so we'll give you that, to the church in Antioch from which they had left. Antioch, Syria, was one of the major cities in the Roman Empire, especially in the east. As we've seen before, Mark was Barnabas' younger cousin. He was the son of Mary. Mary owned the house that Peter had just gone to to uh, knock on the door where the Jerusalem church was missing a meeting. Uh, it's believed that her house also, because they were rich people, was the site of the Last Supper, the large upper room where all the disciples could gather. Also would have been where the uh, miracle at Pentecost took place with the tongues as of flame coming down. This is a prominent family in Christianity. John Mark is well known. Luke says here his name was John and his other name was Mark, but Luke actually uses three different designations in in Acts 4, John Mark. He uses John. He uses Mark. And he uses John Mark. And we have no idea why he switches between them because he's not speaking to different Uh, audiences, but they're all his names, so it doesn't matter anyway. The reason for the three names, again, is this whole whole Saul-Paul thing. Uh, John was his Hebrew name, Mark was his Greek name, and, you know, Saul and Paul, you know, are close, and 
that makes sense to me. And I didn't look up John and Mark to, to see if that had a relevance. So anyway, uh, and uh, he was called John Mark by his mother when he was in trouble, is what my notes say here. So as I pointed out before, John Mark or John or Mark was the author of the Gospel of Mark. So this is a well-known figure who is now being brought with Saul and Barnabas back to Antioch. Verses 1 through 3 say, and I'll read them all, and then we'll take them separately. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So once again, verse 1 says, Now there was in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a long, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Anyway, we have five extraordinary men of the Church of Antioch named here. We know Barnabas and Saul. And we know, because I know that all of you have read ahead, what they will do further in the book of Acts. The other three that we have named here, really not that much is known about. A quick Greek grammar lesson. It says here, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. In the listing in Greek, it says te, te. They don't know how to translate that, but they, it just is a linking between two groups, okay? And I can't give you a word. We're, we're using and here for the linking thing. And then it says, it gives us two people groups. It gives us Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius, and it gives us Manan and Saul. And those are linked together in the Greek the same way that prophets and teachers are. And the rule, therefore, is the prophets that are named here were Barnabas, Simeon, Niger, and Lucius. And the teachers were Manan and Saul. That's just how this works out. So they weren't all prophets and teachers. They were prophets and teachers. As I said, Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas are well known to us. Simeon, who is called Niger, you probably all realize that Niger is Latin for black. We do not know if Simeon was just dark-skinned, swarthy, or if he was actually African. Uh, God doesn't make that distinction. He doesn't tell, necessarily tell us these things. What we do know is that usually if they're identifying an area that they're from, they will give the area like the Ethiopian eunuch or um, Lucian of Cyprus, uh, of Cyrene is called out here. So usually we will be given the area they're from. Simeon, Niger, that's probably just a nickname saying that he's either African or he's very dark-skinned. Remember, a number of people in these areas, there were, there were Indians coming from India on these trade routes and in these towns 
even back then, we think of these places as being, you know, on the other side of the world and not being known about. But all of these people did know about Indians and such. Uh, Dave will remember Sam Uman, who was an extremely dark Indian that was a missionary to the Twin Peaks Church. He might have been called Niger in this passage, were he there then. Anyway, we simply know him as a dark-skinned African prophet of the early church because we do not have any more clarification. A quick note about these prophets identified in Acts in Acts 11, uh, 28, and in 21, 10 through 11, prophets are mentioned in the church. But these prophets received revelation from God of a practical rather than a doctrinal nature. This is uh, John MacArthur says that these prophets edified the church by preaching expositions of existing revelation. These prophets often these prophets' office ended with the cessation of the temporary sign gifts, and their positions morphed into that of pastor-teacher. So with the sign gifts, we really don't have prophets in the church anymore. I know some people claim to be, watch out for them. Uh, pastor-teachers have taken the role of the per- that the prophets were fulfilling at this time. And such were Simon Niger, Barnabas, and Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius, in Greek, is Luke. And some have thought that Lucius of Greek is probably Luke, the author of both the Gospel Luke and Acts, inserting himself in this in a way that doesn't draw attention to himself. People nowadays really think, no, that's not true. However, the reason they think that is that this is the beginning of the time that we see Luke talking about we when he's talking about the events that are going to happen. Uh, Because Luke is with the apostles, the apostle Paul, and with Barnabas from here on out. Saul is identified as a teacher here as is Manan and... um, He's my favorite one in this list. He's identified as a lifelong friend in the ESV of Herod. And this would be Herod Antipas, not Herod Agrippa. We have to bring out that scorecard again and tell which Herod is which. He was a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas, who is the Herod of Jesus' ministry. He's the one that Jesus went before on the trial. He's the, he's the Herod that assented in the execution of Jesus. This is Herod Antipas. The interesting thing here is that this is only a dozen maybe years after Jesus' execution. And here this lifelong friend, other translations say foster brother. The idea being they grew up in Herod's household in the court together. And, and the phrase foster brother is what was used in earlier translations. It can mean courtier. It can mean lifelong friend as we say here. It, it can be brought up with Herod as other translations say. But a dozen years after Herod ascends to Jesus' crucifixion his lifelong friend Manan is one of the lead teachers in 
Antioch, Syria. This is what Christianity has done just in 12 years. However the word is translated, Menaean is a close friend of Herod Antipas. Teachers at this time, unlike prophets, still exist within the church. Obviously we have teachers nowadays in their original historic function, uh, uh, giving and imparting clear understanding of biblical truth. One other thing of note here in this verse, God is gifting the church without regard to ethnic distinctions. And I'm so happy that that numbers scripture came up today. I'd say it's serendipity, but with God it's not serendipity. Because we have here, we have Paul listed. He's a Hellenistic Jew out of uh, Tarsus in Turkey. We have Barnabas from Cyprus. And there were a lot of mixed race people from Cyprus. We have Simon Niger, possibly a black man from Africa. We have Lucius, who is also from Cyprus. And we have Manaean out of the court of the Hebrew king Herod. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as Paul would have said. And God does not judge by race. Race only comes up as an identifier in the Bible. And the Numbers passage, I've taught on it before that Robin read today, where um, Moses' brother and sister are arguing with him because he married a Cushite woman, which is a black woman. And basically, God says, you like white? I'll make you white. And made her leprous white. Just, you want to be white? Here's what I think of your whiteness. Basically what he said. Gave it to her for seven days because Moses begged and took it away. But God does not choose by race. And I think that is the most damaging thing going on in the United States right now is trying to go back to judging by race. We got rid of that a hundred and we didn't get rid of it. We fought a war over it a hundred and sixty years ago now to to put that aside and to want to go back to dividing by pe- people by race is abhorrent. So I'll throw, that's just an aside from listening to Robin uh, with the numbers reading. God does not consider racial differences at all when calling or gifting his people. Okay? That's all there is to it. Verse 2a says, While they were worshiping in the Lord and fasting, John MacArthur points out that nowhere in Scripture are Christians called to fast. Okay? There is not a command, there is not a directive, there is not a commandment. There is nothing about fasting uh, in the New Testament. John MacArthur says there's nothing in the Bible. I don't know that that's true. Uh, I didn't look that far to see if in the Old Testament people are commanded to fast. He says they're not. So I'm throwing that out as a something I did not look up. So I didn't quote him accurately here. I'm saying that in the New Testament, Christians are not called to fast. But Jesus assumed his disciples did. Okay? It's not a commandment, but Jesus assumes 
His people are fasting. Matthew six seventeen, uh, Jesus said, "Yeah, Matthew six seventeen, and Jesus says, when you fast, okay." So that's that pretty clear, okay? It, Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrite, hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Meaning don't put on sack, sackcloth and ashes. Don't walk around you know, oh gloomy me, he says, wash your face, anoint your head, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And once again in Luke 5, 33 through 35, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Fasting in the Bible is often associated with fervent prayer. Here it says they were worshiping the Lord, and you know that fervent prayer would have been part of that worship. So, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, verse 22b, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Note that the church at Antioch did not commission Paul and Barnabas for service. The Holy Spirit says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. There are two principles of Christianity at work here. The first is that it is God who chooses who he will to be his ministers. Okay? God makes the choice. Congregation may ratify it, but God makes the choice. Is what? And it is God who calls men into the ministry. Done correctly, God calls men into the ministry, and he chooses who that will be. The second rule is, and if I just said that there were two rules there, I was mistaken, but the second rule, the second second rule, is that God chooses for further ministry those who are already serving him. Okay? An old saying in Christianity is, you do the job first and then you get the title. Okay? It's, it's that you have to be serving God to get further advancement if, if it's advancement some will tell you it's not advancement but to get a further use of God in the ministry sometimes and I think that apostles might have thought this often, often that they were doing the job but it wasn't really an advancement to uh, be crucified Okay, that, uh, that it wasn't There were no perks associated with further advancement in their position. There were only downsides, and yet a Christian will want to serve God in the way that God wants to use him. Barnabas and Saul had already been tirelessly working for God and the church. Now God has called them 
to the most important ministry of the new church and possibly other than Jesus' own ministry, the most important ministry in the history of the world. Verse 3 says, Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The laying on of hands was not to commission Saul and Barnabas for the missionary field. The Holy Spirit had already commissioned them. This The Holy Spirit had given the walking orders. The laying on of hands was to identify the church in Antioch with the mission at hand. They were signing on to Barnabas and Saul's mission, whatever it was, okay? The Greek here translated, uh, it says the church sent them off. The church did not send them off, okay? The Greek here says that they laid hands on them and released them. Okay? The church released Saul and Barnabas, first of all, from the teaching and preaching and whatever duties they had in the church in Antioch, and also released them to the guidance of the Holy Spirit in their new missionary endeavors. And so begins a journey that in less than 200 years, by my account, 170, will completely change the world. The world will go from absolutely hating and trying to crush Christians wherever they find them, read the emperors of Rome, to to Constantine, becoming a Christian, and many believe he was a true Christian, his mother was, and turning the Roman Empire into the Holy Roman Empire, such as it was. I will put little quotation marks around that holy there. But while Philip the Evangelist converted many in Samaria, including the Ethiopian eunuch that we spoke of earlier, his ministry to Gentiles was largely almost accidental. He was driven out of Judea by the persecution that Saul instituted on the Christians. He left, but he started preaching to who he went to. He did not go to the people of Samaria to convert them. And remember, he didn't go on his own to the Ethiopian eunuch. God completely ordered that. Peter famously converted those Gentiles around the the centurion Cornelius in Caesarea. But what happened there? God completely set that up, told Peter where to go, told, told Peter everything that was going to happen. It was God commissioning, commissioning those outreaches. It was not a church and it wasn't a formal outreach. That does not mean, however, that God is not commissioning Saul and Barnabas in much the same way. With Barnabas and Paul setting out, the church becomes more intentional, as one person said it, more intentional and organized about outreach to the Gentile communities. Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark will first go to Cyprus. And so why Cyprus? Well, remember, um, Barnabas, that was his home country. Um, Perhaps they went there simply 
because it was familiar territory to Barnabas, a good place to start. But perhaps Barnabas had a burden for unsaved family and friends and wanted to bring Christianity to his own homeland. We don't know the reason for going to Cyprus, but that, in any event, is where this long journey began. Richard Longnecker, who um, has a commentary on Acts that I use, and it's quite, quite a nice one, said these missionaries set out, and I love this, and I, I talked to Steve about it earlier because he was asking me a question. They this generally knew the will of God, okay? Generally, they generally knew the will of God. And, and think about that. That's all any of us know. We generally know the will of God. If anybody tells you that they know the will of God, check your pockets. Look for your wallet, okay? Because they're looking for something here. We are given a general knowledge of the will of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is their commission. They know generally what to do. Did God guide them to Cyprus? I'm sure he did. Did they know God was guiding them to Cyprus? I don't think so. I think they were generally knew the will of God and were willing to be used by him no matter how many times their journey would take a detour. These are the instructions that Paul and Barnabas are acting under. There were no specifics. Just go and make disciples of all nations. That is as general a command as there can be. Paul and Barnabas generally knew the will of God. And that's all they were given. And it's, if that's as much as the Apostle Paul knew, you can bet that's all any of us are given. To know generally the will of God. In fact, I would, uh, well, God wants us to know his will. But if we are not privy to all the details of the larger plan, it is because we do not need the larger details of his plan. Perhaps the de larger details of the plan would hinder us in our effective message. We have the, our general marching orders, the same that Paul and Barnabas were operating under, go unto all the nations. And it's going to happen for all of us in a different way. We don't know the result of our efforts, not in this church, not in any church. We don't even know what those results will look like. You know, the Christian walk has been likened to climbing a mountain any number of times, okay? I will be remiss if I do not have some kind of an anecdote here, so I've got one for you. Um, the year I graduated from high school, 1971, just to age me, my family that summer went to, to a... Uh, family reunion in Missouri. I'd never been to Missouri. I'd never met any of these extended family, but that's where my mother was from. Lots of cousins. Lot. I met a couple of the second cousins who were roughly my age, and we were staying on their farm. They had a cattle farm 
you farm cattle in the Midwest, you don't ranch them, just to let you know. So plant a seed, you know, water them. It was haying time on their farm, so I spent a few weeks bucking hay onto a hay wagon, okay? It was a lot of fun. I mean, a lot of work, but it was a lot. I've never done it before. It was a lot of fun. Things are always fun when you really don't have to do them for very long, usually. And uh, after it was done, my cousin Ben, a year older than me, said, what do we do now? And uh, it was decided that we should take a car trip. And I said, where do you want to go? And my cousin, this, I won't say this poor little farm boy, but this poor little farm boy said, I've never seen a mountain. <laughs> and that's, what is that thing? The highest point in this part of Missouri was actually on one of my uh, family's farms. It was 800 feet tall, okay? And my cousin Ben says, I've never seen a mountain. Can we go and see a mountain? So we got out our atlases or our maps, and we're looking for a mountain. And, you know, gosh, you know, just to the east of us are the Great Smoky Mountains. Out, you know, just to the east of us, a thousand miles. There were probably closer. The Rockies were probably closer, okay? But, you know, Great Smoky Mountains, they must be mountains. So we borrowed my uncle's car and went on a road trip. Get to eastern Tennessee. See a sign that says Great Smoky Mountain Parkway. We've hit the jackpot. This must be the place that we turn off. And we're driving, and we're driving these roads. And, you know, in the west, I can show you a mountain really easily. They sort of stick up out of the ground real high, you know. You know, like our mountains. You know, you're down in San Bernardino. You've never seen a mountain? Open your eyes. Look to your north. There's a mountain. Look to your south. There, there's Saddleback Mountain. Not so with eastern Tennessee. They, they, they sort of gradually sneak up on you. And, and so we're driving along, and uh, we're ga- we know we're gaining altitude. My cousin says, is this a mountain? And I look around, and I say, nah, Ben, this isn't, this isn't a mountain. And we drive for another half an hour, 45 minutes. Ben says, is this a mountain? And... No, Ben, this isn't a mountain. So we drive for you know, another hour. Is this a mountain? No, Ben. Finally, I pull over into, it says scenic turnout, okay? You know, okay, scenic turnout. So I pull out, and as I get out of the car, I look behind me, and there's this valley in the distance stretching out. And I said, Ben, that's a valley, and he'd never seen a valley before either. <laughs> okay, that's a valley. So this must be a mountain. Okay, well, maybe that's the story in a nutshell of the Christian life. A general idea of God's will. Uh, a, a travel up the hill of the Christian life with no real awareness of the distance traveled, the height gained, or what you've left behind until we look back and see the valley below and realize that we've actually gone somewhere. You know, Paul Barnabas and John Mark are embarking on a boat for Cyprus, generally knowing, and I love that phrase, generally knowing the will of God, not really understanding the distance of the journey ahead and the heights they'll ascend and the valleys they will go through before they do. And 
off they go. Let's pray.